Hi, and welcome to the Inspect and Adapt podcast. I am your host, Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We're a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here at Constructs, we believe every software team can be more successful in delivering higher levels of business value. For the majority of the podcast episodes over the last couple of years, we've structured the podcast around recent engagements that our consultants have delivered. As is consistent with Inspect and Adapt, we are also experimenting with recording the podcast around topics that aren't directly related to any specific engagement, but rather focus on specific practice or set of practices. It's worked well in the past, and so we thought we'd try another one. Today, what you'll hear is another lightly edited extract from a recording we did in September of 2022. This discussion was centered on the concept of individual estimation, the idea of personal expert judgment as the primary method of providing software estimates. I invited two people with some street cred here, Construct Senior Fellow Earl Beatty and Principal Consultant Steve Taki to sit behind their respective mics for this session. We pick up the conversation as we begin to frame what this discussion will be all about. So, as it's fall here in the Pacific Northwest, let's kick off our shoes, jump in the pile of leaves, and see what we find. So what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about the the concept or the subject that's called individual estimation. And clearly Constructs over the years has talked a lot about estimation. Our founder, Steve McConnell, wrote a book about it. We have taught countless number of classes. We have been on site helping people set up their own estimation models. We've done all kinds of things. So well, I believe we're coming at this from a position of qualified expert. I'm going to point out Steve Taki wrote a book on software engineering economics, which includes tons on estimation. That's correct. Well, there's there's two chapters, I believe. That's tons. Tons. Or three. Yeah, tons. <laughs> given the weight of your given the weight of your book, it's probably a couple of tons, Steve. Well, that, that I think that book was only five hundred pages long. It's only okay. half the okay. size of the second book. It'll keep a moderate door from blowing closed right. in the wind. So right. <laughs> What are we talking about with regards to individual estimation? Is this like individual and team and project? And what's, let's just frame that. The idea here is that when you ask people for an estimate, the technique that they go to most often is called individual expert judgment estimation. That is, they basically look at it, think back on their expertise, what they've been able to do, what they've accomplished in the past, think, hmm, based upon my expertise, I think this will take or this will cost or this is this big. Individual expert judgment. That's what we use. And we use it on small things. We use it on medium-sized things. And we tend to use it on big things. And as a technique, it is probably the most common technique out there today that people look at it, look into their expertise, look into their gut and say, hmm, I think it is and they give an answer. Now, they may doodle on a piece of paper or something like that, but still, in the essence, they're just looking at their gut and coming up with an answer. Is it the best technique for all situations? No. Is it the best technique for most situations? Probably not. But it is the technique that is most widely used because if you think of yourself as a human being, this is what we do. If someone says, hey, Earl, how long will it take you to come over? I think about it. I maybe look up a couple of things. But generally, I just look at my internal calibration engine and go, it's going to take me X. And that's what we do. And that's what we do this on projects all the time. And what the scary thing is that we start making decisions based upon that information. People say, oh, it's only going to be three weeks. Okay, so we'll start scheduling X, Y, and Z in three weeks because you said three weeks. And off we go to the races. And that's where we start getting in trouble because it's not a very accurate technique 
in the majority of cases. Steve, would you agree with that summary or would you think I'm off base there? No, absolutely. I was just looking at some of my notes here and there's been three surveys. I don't know how comprehensive they were, but the average is about 80% of software estimation is this expert judgment estimation. So at 80%, it's the dominant form of estimation. However, it performs the least well in terms of its actual production of estimates that you should be making decisions based on. Well, that's great. Nice house of cards for the industry, huh? <laughs> Think about it. If right? I, when I go into shop and I, they're trying to build up some sort of release estimate or they're trying to respond to a client saying, how long is it going to take? What they tend to want to do is they say, go out to a bunch of teams and they say to these teams, okay, you have to build an X, Y, and Z. And so first of all, guess at all the things you're going to have to build over the next three to four or to six months, right? Mark Griffin, were you there one time when we heard a client said, we want your five-year estimate? Oh yeah, <laughs> detailed five years. Our jaws just dropped like, <clears throat> right? And we want it, we want it within 10%. It's like, okay. And each team, basically every individual team does an individual expert judge estimate on their little piece, and then they start adding together. Now, it turns out, one of the reasons it performs so poorly, that if you look on a, if you think about an estimate as being a probability distribution function, that is that when we do an estimate, there's a minimum number and they can then expand off into almost infinity. When people give an estimate, they usually are just picking a point on that probability distribution curve. They're not giving us the whole curve. They're picking a point typically. And where these individual expert judgment estimates tend to land is I call the gut point. The gut point, this individual expert point, tends to be relatively low probability of being on or before. So if I looked at the area under the curve, I probably have a 25, 30% chance of being on or before that gut point which means I have a really, really good chance of being long past that gut point. This becomes then the big problem is that if I have this gut point, this 20, 25% probability of being on or before, and I add that and combine that with someone else's gut point, which has a 25 to 30% before, and I add that to someone else's gut point that has a 25 to 30% chance before, we don't get a, a combination. If we add those together, we don't get a combination that has a 25 to 30%. Now we have a combination that has like 6% chance or being honored before or 4% chance, it rapidly approaches zero. Never quite get there, but rapidly approaches zero as we combine more and more of these gut estimates together that have this low probability. Now, perhaps someone throws in one that has an 80% chance because they're sandbagging the heck out of it and just have been around the corner too long. But generally, we'll add up with a combination that has almost no chance whatsoever of happening. And this is what's causing businesses tons of pain and suffering is that they're building up these estimates that have really no basis in reality. An interesting study done by a guy named Michel Van Genushten involved over 400 developers in, I can't remember how many organizations, but many. And basically what he did was he asked people, as they were doing their individual estimates, to write down what the estimate was, then go do the work, and then write down what the actual was when they completed the work. And then just give him all of this data. And so, as I said, about 400 developers. How many times did each developer do that? Well, it's not really clear in what he published. But long story short was that uh, the data revealed that the average developer is underestimating by 25%. Whatever estimate, on average, you were given by the individual person, the actual was 25% more than that. There's a lot of variation around that. As I said, that's the average. Some people tended to underestimate 
by less. Some people tended to mm -hmm. underestimate by a lot more. It was a fairly noisy average, but you can almost count on, on average, an individual developer being under by 25%. And like Earl was saying, if I take a 25% underestimate and I tack that onto another 25% underestimate, the probability that I'm going to be able to achieve that sum rapidly approaches zero. You guys are scaring me into thinking about my probability and statistics classes, and I'm just I'm just getting freaked out about math here. It is scary because it's so much probability analysis in here, and it's just yeah, yeah. makes your head want to explode. Well, Earl only introduced the idea of the probability density function. In fact, we have yet to talk about the cumulative probability function, which is the integral oh, of the probability density function. Yeah, you don't want to go there, right? And it's just simpler to use some better techniques at some point. The other problem with individual estimation is not just the fact that we tend to be typically biased to underestimate in terms of uh, cost or time or overestimate in terms of features, but we're also heavily biased by the corporate culture and pressure we're currently involved with. If the business comes to says, so it says, hey, we just promised this is six months, how long is it going to take? We just anchored ourselves as an individual in our thinking around six months our numbers and our estimates will start looking a lot more like six months than any other number because we were told it's due in six months. We we confuse the, the techniques of estimating, of actually analyzing the work to come up with a number with target setting or something like that, where, where the business has a desire of some sort. And our job with an estimation isn't to say, oh, here's how I conform the work to meet your desire. Our job with estimation is saying, okay, given the work you've described and your desire, how well are those matching up and are we at risk? And do we need to make adjustments right now so that we have a better chance of delivering something close to your desire? Or are we just totally hosed and need to rethink the whole thing? One of the things I think that should frame this conversation is people estimate for a reason. That's the essential question is why are we estimating in the first place? I mean, businesses have a desire to sell something to the marketplace or provide services to the marketplace. To do that, and you know, they got an army of salespeople. They have people out there, out there talking to stakeholders and talking to to potential customers and bringing back needs and interests and whatever that fall into requirements. And so, the business wants to try and commit to something for those particular prospects in order to generate income. And so, as engineers on the other side of the equation, someone comes to the, the team, to the individuals, and says, we need to figure out when we're going to get this. That's the essential question, I think, really, is when are we going to get things that we are committing to the marketplace? Certainly, the better organizations, there's a discussion, there's a seesaw that goes back and forth in terms of what do people need, things like that. But I think at the end of the day, you're trying to, to align to business, a business goal that's out there. I won't disagree with you, but what I'll disagree with is the business's concept that they can get away with making an external commitment without validating to the people that are supposed to do the work that that is a reasonable commitment to be making. I didn't say they made the commitment. I said they want to make a commitment. I want to win the lottery. They want to make a commitment. You can't just tell somebody, oh, yeah, we'll get to that someday. A prospect wants to know in their own planning, they're going to use a tool, they're going to use a service, they're going to use something at some point in time. You can't just say, well, we'll get to it when we get to it, because my engineers never like to estimate. Well, I think we're dancing around a couple of fundamental issues here, which to expose have to do with how do you define words? When you use the word estimate, what do you mean? When you use the word commitment, what do you mean? Well, good. That's a good thing to jump into. Let's, why don't we just do that? Okay, and so the way I've been defining it is that the estimate 
is has two properties. Property number one is the estimate is based on the analysis done by the people who are going to do the work. Mm -hmm. You can't tell me what the estimate is. My analysis, I'm going to tell you what the estimate is. The other part of it, without having to go into too deep in cumulative probability functions and things like that, is that the estimate should be the point at which we believe we are as likely to do better than as we are to be do, to do worse than. I mean, a minor little side note here is Tom DeMarco years ago had defined an estimate as, quote, the most optimistic prediction that has a non-zero probability of coming true, which leads to what he calls what's the earliest date by which you can't prove you won't be done estimation. Yep. It's still true. Oh, yeah. I mean, he made that statement back, I think, in about 1985. I'd have to look it up. It's 82. Okay, right. Uh, And so 82, 2022? 30 years. 40 years? 40 years. 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have meteor estimates right now. Uh, That's first lesson number one. (laughs) Okay, so so that's the idea of the estimate. And again, the 50-50 probability. It's what the people who are responsible for doing the work feel is as likely to be bettered as to be worst. Okay. The idea of the target, the target is what the business wants it to take. The business wants it to take six months. Now, in our heart of hearts, we're thinking uh, analytically, we're looking more like seven months or whatever. The idea of a commitment being what we jointly agree is possible and we're going to be working towards, however... It would not make sense, and this is a fundamental point, it would not make sense to a commit to a 50-50. I'm going to, quote, commit to something that I have a 50% chance of doing. That's really silly. And so what you want to do is to, pad is the wrong word, but basically put in some wiggle room that increases the probability that we're going to be able to actually make that. And that increase has to be based on, I believe, an analysis of the inherent uncertainty together with contingencies for the risks. And if I start with my 50-50 estimate, it's likely to do better than is worse than, and then I can layer on top of that an allowance for the, con- for the uncertainty and then contingencies for risk. That's what I'm willing to commit to. Let me jump in here with a little comment from Bang's data channel. And we can see in this comment, we're often asked to achieve X by Y date, then we go back and do some estimates. And what we're really typically doing here, and I think what you're describing is, is very common, but I don't think it's actually estimating. It's trying to plan. It's trying to come up with a plan that meets the already agreed date and scope. And we do just enough sort of guessing at effort to say, okay, how can we create some sort of arrangement to make that happen. As Steve was saying, estimation should be the independent analysis of the work itself to say, what does the work tell me it takes given the way we do work in our organization? And then we go back and see that achieve X by Y date kind of problem and say, okay, are we likely to hit that? Are we unlikely to hit that? Are we kind of close and just mean to make some adjustments so we can hit that? What can we do to make it happen? Now, our areas of adjustments are pretty slim. But when we go back to individual estimation, we're not even close to beginning with the understanding the work itself. 
because individual expert judgment estimation as a technique by itself tends to be massively underestimating the work, which means that we'll go in and tell that boss, sure, we can make that. Sure, we can make that work happen. And then we start working it and we're halfway through our three quarters and three quarters of the way through and we realize, no, we're not going to make that. It's going to blow up right in our face. The comment from this user was that teams come back with a person month estimate and then the VPs look at that and say, well, you only have this much staff, so I'm going to throw more bodies at it, hoping to achieve the date. And, and certainly, certainly in an agile context, that's, that's a disaster. It's a disaster maybe in any context, but in agile in particular, when you throw bodies into a, into a scrum team and say, okay, here's four more people, you'll make the date. No. A combination of eight different studies showed that there seems to be a wall about, even if you had unlimited bodies, there seems to be a wall about how much you can compress from that 50-50 schedule, which goes by the name of the nominal schedule, the nominal estimate. How much you can compress for that nominal given the unlimited number of bodies? And the, the number seems to be around 20-25% that you can compress the schedule by throwing bodies at. And Steve throws a, a nice little compression formula in his book about how to sort of say, are you within that 20% or are you just going into fantasy land? You keep adding bodies, but actually what you'll probably start doing is actually start increasing this schedule again because you're going to all the time spending according to those bodies. A cost will go to infinity before schedule goes below about 20-25% off of the nominal schedule. We're drifting, uh, I think that, that question, great question, but I think that, that drifts us away from the topic of individual estimation and into the issue of the iron triangle. At this point, we're not estimating per se. At this point, we're trying to figure out a way to meet a target. But the iron triangle of, uh, what is it? Cost, schedule, and scope. Pick any two. You can't fix all three. Just because they want it to be this much scope in that much schedule. Again, even if you gave me an infinite number of people, that ain't going to happen. And so... Sometimes the most effective solution is to basically cut scope. Do you need everything by that date or can we prioritize it? Can we scale back and at least we can deliver you the most essential, the most valuable work by that point in time? Jim Simmons is giving us some comments here and I think he's, he's found one of the techniques to improve your individual estimation process and he goes right here, is a lot of people come up with their own personal fudge factors. Uh, Jim has, has noticed that his personal ROM estimates are off by 50% because there's 20% he knows, 25% don't know, and there's 50% I don't know that I don't know, right? So <laughs> he's come up with his own little sort of formula to help him sort of drive a little bit of his own personal spreadsheets. And this is a great technique. One of the things you can do uh, to improve your own individual estimation is to do what Steve talked about in that early first study is that if you write down your estimate, do the work, write down the actual, that feedback loop will make you better. My own personal story is this, is that I, as the uh, computer geek in the household, always install the software on the computers. And my wife, for, for a long time, would come up to me when it was time to install something, say, hey, how long do you need? And I'd look at the software and i go, this should only take 15 minutes. And she goes, okay, I'll plan dinner for a, a half hour, 45 minutes from now. And I'd say, why? This should only take 15 minutes. She'd go, yes, dear. And a half hour later, 45 minutes later, I'd be done because some stupid driver needed to be updated. Something new needed to be downloaded. Some glitch happened when I was installing it and it would always take longer. And it only took me 
oh, five years or so, to be honest with you, to figure out going, you know what? Getting this new piece of software, this should only take 20 minutes. But if I say 20 minutes, she'll say she'll have dinner ready in 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. So I'm going to say 45 minutes. Right? I came up with my own personal fudge factor to deal with the fact that I knew I was biased. And we see a lot of classic project managers doing this because they'll do things like that to say, oh, I'll take whatever estimates I get and I double them, which wouldn't actually often be that far off. Finding your own personal fudge factor and then using that so you can do your gut, which is cheap and easy. One of the things we don't mention about the gut, it's really fast. Coming up with a gut estimate can be a really quick estimate. You just look at it and go, hmm, three weeks. Simple to do. And then if you have your own personal fudge factor that corrects for your biases, that might work pretty well. Unfortunately, that often doesn't scale to different areas. So your fudge factor for doing software updates might not be the right fudge factor for my driving to work kind of thing. Right? I'd have to come up with a fudge factor that's appropriate for each type of work. But that is one technique people use to improve their individual estimates. That leads into what I've thought for many years, and that is that not just individual estimation, but all estimation, the key to estimation, the key to effective estimation is historical data. Having some basis in fact for the estimate that you're you're giving. And so you estimate something, you write down the estimate, you do the work, then you write down what it actually took. And then you compare the estimate to the actual and you say, well, why was it different? And you analyze the difference and you feed that back into later estimates. Well, last time I said it was going to take me a week, it actually took me a week and a half. Why did it take me a week and a half? Oh, because what you were asking me to estimate was how long is it going to take to, to write the code for this class? And sure, it really only took me a week to write the code for the class, but <laughs> somebody had to test that class. Somebody had to change the build script. Somebody had to update some documentation, somebody, and it's that extra work. Incidentally, uh, getting back to that Michelle Van Genusten study, he didn't have the data to prove it in that study, but he said the smoking gun here on the 25% underestimation was, quote, forgotten work. Work that's necessary to call the job done that was not included in the estimate. Oh, yeah, we need to change the build script. Oh, yeah, we need to have some test cases at the unit level, at the system. There's all this work that's involved in getting to actual done that wasn't incorporated into the estimate itself. I think this is getting to sort of uh, some of the things we want to talk about in a little more detail. And that is, you know, I think we've beaten this uh, expert judgment thing to death. The fact that it's not, it's not the perfect solution. <laughs> what are there so, some other techniques? What are some of the other ways that we can do that? You can actually up the individual estimation to it to be a okay-ish technique. And Steve just listed one of the techniques is creating a frequent, frequently forgotten items list. What are the things I need to think about before I give you an estimate? Now, this stops me from being off the cuff. I have to go find the list and just glance, just glancing over it. We see a dramatic improvement in estimation accuracy by looking at a frequently forgotten item list. Oh, I have to include testing. I have to include these things. You can even take that a step higher and start building what one of our previous coworkers called a work pattern. These are the kinds of things we do when we do this kind of work. I share in my class a work pattern that he had for fixing Java bugs. These are the kinds of things. Not only do we have to understand the bug and do some debugging, but we have to write these documents. We have to do this kind of scripting. We have to automate these tests, blah, 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 blah. So you have, in a sense, this pattern is all the things we could do. We may not do them all for this particular bug or this particular new feature or this particular class, but these are things we typically do do 
now we can improve that uh, estimate because just looking at that list overall. And grounding that in the, the agile world, the, the point here is the importance of the definition of done. That's a great thing to help you figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. What, what in your organization are the criteria that allow the members on your team to be able to say that this user story is done or as they like to emphasize done done? And now the point is, is that definition of done should be the instrument of estimation. I'm not estimating how long it's going to take me to write the code for the story. I'm estimating how long it's going to take me to satisfy the definition of done. That definition of done is the work pattern. It's the reminder of the frequently forgotten items. So having a a really good definition of done and enforcing that definition of done is, in my experience, one of the things that makes a difference between people who do agile but actually don't perform any better than waterfall versus people that are doing agile that are actually performing at the level that you should be performing on any project. You can take that idea of going to the done definition and you can actually then involve the team because Agile wants to do things more as a team base and here's where you can take advantage of a team. There is a process called structured group estimation which is based upon individual expert judgment. We don't have a lot of data, we don't have a lot of historical stuff, but we have some some knowledge among the team. And so what you do is you present the problem, everyone does their own individual estimate, sometimes hopefully you can even do it in secret so you don't know who's saying what. And then you reveal it roughly at the same time so that you're not trying to bias other people with your answers. You want to hear what they think, not what you think repeated out of them. So you show all your answers at the same time. And then you discuss the differences because different people bring different things to the table. You try to bring up as much knowledge as possible. But this can be an also way to improve individual expert judgment is put into a structured group. And if that process sounds familiar to my Agile people out there, that's basically the process of planning poker. We discuss it, we individually estimate by choosing a card, we reveal roughly the same time, and we figure out why we're saying different numbers. Rob has a comment here that sees math. Right. Math starts saying, okay, let's take size and then calibrate it. Because one of the things that expert judgment does that gets it in trouble quite frequently is it tries to estimate effort directly. And estimating effort directly is super bias because of the political pressure to always be faster. Whereas you estimate science and then use math to calibrate the effort, you'll be better. And that's why planning poker can work relatively well, because story points are supposed to be a size estimate, a relative sizing technique that we then calibrate the effort. That calibration is called velocity. How much can this team, because remember, we're working at the team level, not individual at this point, how much size can this team take in in a given sprint? That's the velocity. So we've calibrated the known effort the team size for that period against the ability to take in how much work. That's the math, simple math. People have had the idea of mathematical-based estimation. People have had the idea that historical data is best, but yet we still run into so many clients who simply don't have data that they store. Why, why, why do engineers abhor that? Why don't that? Why doesn't that data repository be a requirement for how you run your software business? Answer: Because you're not really an engineer. 
That's a new podcast. Let's park that one. No, I was just working with a group last night talking about this very issue. I was working with a different project team, an agile team, somewhere in Norway. I can't remember if it was Bergen or Oslo. Probably Oslo. Long story short, I'm talking to the Scrum Master, and Scrum Master says, Steve, I've got this problem, a chronic problem. I need your help fixing it. I said, okay, tell me about your problem. He says, well, consistently what we do on every sprint is we bring in 100 story points worth of work. I said, okay, fine. What's the problem? He says, well, in every sprint, we're only able to accomplish 80. Bring in 100, get 80 done. Bring in 100, get 80 done. And I said, why don't you just bring in 80? And the fact that you have this repeating pattern, we've been able to do 80, and you've demonstrated consistently your ability to do it. Why don't you just bring in 80? And his response back to me was, I can do that? I mean, this is not <laughs> rocket science. Getting back to the idea of estimation using historical data is that velocity and what I call velocity-based sprint planning, where my planning velocity for my next sprint is some mathematical function of the observed velocities from previous sprints. Again, that's a kind of historical data. It's a kind of math, but it's math that involves use of historical data. And again, that's one of the big differences I see between organizations that are effective in their implementation of Agile and organizations that are, quote, agile, but are not effective at it, is velocity-based sprint planning. I'm going to jump in here as well, because I think while Steve's points are all excellent and valid, I want to add a, another take on this a little bit, is that when we talk about individual expert, expert judgment, I said one way we can improve it is by doing it in a group team. Another way to improve it is to mimic that probability distribution function we talked about before, is, is to say what's called a three-point estimate. And what you do is you say, okay, let's look and try to figure out the three points. And the three points are typically called the best case, the worst case, and the most likely case. The best case is really the same thing as the gut one. That's almost always, I mean, you could maybe do a little bit better, but usually your gut is going to be probably close enough to the best case to be done with it. So you just say, okay, here's my gut. And then you ask the person, okay, let's pretend that everything that goes wrong goes wrong for you. Everything that our company that could possibly go wrong goes wrong for you. And then they say, okay, well, I'll take that best case and I'll multiply it by five. They'll come up with some multiplier. If they say two, I, I always ask, really, the worst you've ever seen at your company is just two X of what you said? No, it's, okay, then get, give me a word, give me a number that's so scary that if you told it to anyone outside of this conversation, they would just, you know, crap their pants. It would just be horrible. That's how it works. Worst should be worse. It should be just a poor day. It should be worse. So they finally come up with the worst case. And I say, okay, now let's go back. It's not going to be your best case. It's certainly not going to be your worst case. Give me a number that you feel more comfortable with. And that's what we'll call the most likely. And then we can do math on that. The people at the Navy found that, that using the three-point technique, they can actually form a little formula on it. And they call it the programming evaluation review technique, but no one ever calls it that. They call it the PERT formula for the first letters, P-E-R-T, PERT. And when you take that most likely number and you anchor it, you, you take four of those. You just say, oh, okay, we take four of those, one, two, three, four. Then you add the best case number and the worst case number. So you have six total numbers now, four of the most likely, your best case, your most likely. And then you take the average of that. So you divide by six. And that turns out to be fairly close to that nominal number or closer, at least, to that nominal number than we typically get if someone just says, give me that nominal that Steve talked about that we need, especially if we're going to try to add together multiple projects. So that's another way 
to improve the individual estimate. In some experience, that a, a two-point estimate w- was shockingly good. It's called the geometric mean. If I take my best case estimate and I multiply it by my worst case estimate, and then I take the square root. The point is, is that in this organization, they had done a whole series of estimates of tasks and they had done best case, worst case, the most likely case, and they had run PERT and PERT told them, here is what you should expect. And they had run geometric mean on the best case, worst case. And then they had written down what actually happened. And to me, I'm just saying it was scary how accurate the geometric mean was. So I'm trying to convince people to maybe try, I mean, just getting you off on PERT would be a major step in the right direction. But why don't you consider geometric mean? Because uh, at least in some experience I've had, it's, it, it is scarily accurate. So make sure I understand this. Yeah, I, so I, have, I say my best case is two days, my worst case is 10 days. So I multiply two times 10 to get 20, and then take the square root of 20, which is going to be four and some change. Yeah. And then if you do best case most likely case, worst case, you have three numbers. Multiply the three numbers together and then take the cube root. There's an underlying principle in the multiple point estimate that I think needs to be revealed. As, as Earl was saying earlier, when you do a single point estimate, you tend to have a underestimate. You tend to be very optimistic. You tend to be overly optimistic in your estimate when all you think about is that single point. By doing a two-point estimate, by doing a three-point estimate, what we are doing is explicitly giving you permission to think about what can go wrong. Basically sensitize you to, uh, maybe I shouldn't be so optimistic to temper your estimates with knowledge of the things that could go wrong. That's why they tend to perform better, I I would propose, is because you're bringing in some realism. Yeah, I could get sick, or yeah, I could get distracted, or yeah, and this is likely to influence. So why don't I consider that as part of my estimate? And Rob brings up another point in one of his comments, but as he breaks them down into small ones and adds those up, if he's doing the small ones really and actually remembers a lot of the work, he's going to number that comes out higher but more accurate, which is kind of interesting because I remember the first time I actually used some of these better techniques we're talking about, even on the individual estimates, and the numbers were higher than I would expect. And I thought, no, no, these can't be right. But they would turn out to be more accurate. That is, they were a better predictor of what actually happened than what my gut was telling me. And I think a lot of people, when they start seeing their first estimates and seeing numbers that are bigger than what their guts are saying, have a lot of problem with that. They say, I don't trust these techniques, even if you know, do those, the, the what what'd you call it, cube, what was the square root function called? The geometric mean. Geometric means. The geometric means. So if they use something like that, they'll see a bigger number, they'll go, no, I don't trust that. So do what Steve suggests, just write it down. Even if you don't use it, just write it down. Put it in a drawer somewhere, and when you finish the work, pull it back out and look at it and say, was my gut or was this geometric means a better predictor of what actually happened now that I've finished it? Yes, and Rob actually brings up a fundamental technique. I mean, let me put it this way. In the recognized engineering disciplines, 
So I'm talking about civil engineering, chemical engineering, industrial engineering. There are a core set of fundamental estimation building blocks. And this expert judgment estimation is just one of those four fundamental building blocks. What Rob brought up, the idea of I take this thing that I'm trying to estimate and I break it down into smaller pieces and I estimate the smaller pieces and I add up the estimates to the smaller pieces to reconstitute the estimate of the bigger piece, that is called estimation by decomposition. And one of the reasons that estimation by decomposition tends to perform better than estimation by expert judgment is simply that in that decomposition, you're likely to reveal the fact that there are things that need to be included in the work to get the work done that weren't included in the original expert judgment. There's a other effect called the law of large numbers where if I have a sufficient decomposition and if I'm sufficiently unbiased in the lower level estimates, then lower level estimates, half of them will be overestimates, half of them will be underestimates, and the overs will tend to cancel the unders, thus leading me to an, uh, a more accurate estimate. That's if you don't have the bias. If we have the expert judgment bias, the big on and we're screwed beyond belief. Right, because when there is no bias, the overs will tend to cancel the uh, uh, unders, okay? But on the other hand, if there's a systemic bias, that, that bias is compounded. And so by expert judgment, the downside, sorry, the downside of a decomposition estimate is that you can go through this procedure and allow you to paint yourself a very convincing picture that you've nailed it, but in fact, you actually have no hope of that ever coming true. One benefit, though, is that if you did do that decomposition and you tracked those first items that you did on that decomposition and you started noticing that, you know what? The first five items, I all underestimated by 25%. Estimation biases or errors tend to be systemic. That is, you can start saying, mm-hmm. wow, I've noticed the first chunk of these things. I'm underestimated by 25%. That probably indicates that my overall estimate is off by a similar factor. At least 25%. And I can do an immediate adjustment sooner than if I had just one big estimate and didn't realize I was off till the nearly the end. Right. And that's the core of a technique that dates back to the 19... 19- well, actually, I have to remember how, how far does this go back. I'd have to look. But easily pre-1950s, is this technique is called earned value, where you're comparing your estimates of the early work to the actuals of the early work and saying, if there's systemic bias in my early estimates, then clearly there is at least that much systemic bias in my late estimates. How does velocity-based sprint planning in your Agile project relate to earned value? And actually, they're analogs, which is why I'm a huge fan of velocity-based uh, sprint planning, because earned value is such a par- uh, powerful technique. So we've talked about estimation by expert judgment not being a good way of doing things. And I've at least introduced this, as well, Rob introduced it, and I just kind of elaborated on it, this idea of uh, estimation by decomposition. And I think at least we kind of touched on the topic of another alternative, which is called estimation by analogy. And the idea here is that I'm trying to estimate something that I don't know, but the thing that I don't know is similar to something that I do know that I have actual results for. And so if I just understand the differences between the thing that I do know and the thing that I don't know, 
And essentially what I'm doing is not estimating what uh, the whole thing. I'm just estimating the differences. Because we're here in the Seattle, Washington area, if I'm trying to estimate how long it's going to take to drive to Vancouver, B.C., Canada, and I've never driven to Vancouver, B.C., Canada, if I have driven to Portland, Oregon, I say, well, okay, so it takes me about three hours to get from Seattle to Portland. And hmm, Vancouver, B.C., Canada is pretty close to the same distance. It's not exact, but it's kind of close. Well, okay. It's up <laughs> Yeah. Only on a bike. But my point is, is that, yes, they are pretty close in distance. And so if I got a better measure of the distance, can I understand that, okay, it's maybe 10% farther to, uh, to Vancouver, BC, Canada? Well, okay. Well, I'll just add 10%. Now, on the other hand, I've never been able to make it through Olympia, Washington without getting tied up in some kind of traffic. Well, what about traffic between here and Vancouver? Well, you got to make the border crossing. And so my point is, is that we're starting with the thing that we do know, which is, yeah, I I do know about going from here to Portland because my mom lives there. Yeah, fine. What I don't know is going to Vancouver, but the distances are about the same, but I've got an international border crossing. And okay, so what do I allow for the border crossing? And I'm building up my estimate for driving to Vancouver based on my knowledge of driving to Portland, but allowing for the differences. Analogy. Yeah, that's estimation by analogy. Now, the advantage here is that it tends to be much more accurate than expert judgment because I'm basing it on real data. And it tends to be not a whole lot more work than an expert judgment estimate. And so if it gives me a much better estimate without a heck of a lot more extra work, then fine. Okay, so we've got three building blocks already, expert judgment, analogy, decomposition, and the fourth one is something called... uh, um, Well, parametric estimate, estimation by... uh, Tools. Yeah, well, parametric estimation is one of the common uh, ways of looking at... Essentially, I have enough historical data that I can establish a mathematical relationship between the thing that I'm trying to estimate, cost, effort, schedule, and something that is observable at the time that I'm trying to get the estimate. I mean, this brings me back to some of you know my history of having built a custom house in Iowa. And the question is, how big a house can I afford? Because I know I can spend this much money on this custom house. But what does this tell me about the size of the house? And so what was interesting here was that Dave, the contractor who actually built the house, said, oh, it's really simple, $90 a square foot. Because Dave had been building houses for long enough that if the house was this many square feet, multiply that by 90, and that was pretty close to the cost of the house. And long story short on that one is that we were off by under 2%, I think it was about 1.5%, if this many square feet and $90 per square foot. And what accounted for the difference was we decided to put Corian countertops in the kitchen. So I wanted to point out two key things. One is that he's talking about techniques that improve individ- are better than individual expert. And there's a suite of tools that, that we could all go into, including the ones he just talked about, proxy. But they also really work well with historical data. And a lot of our clients don't have historical data. 
And here's where I actually, I use individual expert judgment in the structured group format to create historical data for my teams, because I still think that will get them closer to a real number than their expert judgment gut calls. And what I have them do is I say, okay, we didn't record how long it took to go to Portland in Steve's example. We drove it, but no one wrote down the time. No one bothered to look at their watch. So what we're going to do is we're going to get a bunch of people who were on that trip, who have done that trip, who never recorded their time, to all come together and we'll talk about, hmm, tell us about that trip. What sort of happened when you remember? And then each individual will write down their own estimate, their own remembrance of how long it took. And one person will say four hours, one person will say two hours, one person will say five hours. They'll come up with a range of numbers and we'll talk about that range. Why two hours? What was going on? What do you remember about that trip? Why five hours? And then we'll do another round. And we may then we'll say, okay, we'll have a rule after the second round about what number we choose. Will we choose the highest number for safety? Because turns out if we look at penalties for estimation, that slightly overestimating is, is a lot less painful than slightly underestimating, that you'll pay less penalty overall. We want to take the highest number. We want to take the middle number or the average of that range that finally comes out. We'll have some rule. And we'll use that as our historical data. Now, why is that better? It's better because it takes away the pressure and the bias to estimate the new things. We're estimating the past thing now. It's over. It's done. No one's going to argue, well, well, we want that drive to be much shorter to Portland that you already finished. It's done. So we don't have that political pressure to make that estimate bigger or smaller. It could just be it itself. Then we use that as our historical data, since we don't have any at the moment, to then walk over and apply that to our new projects. Well, okay, we finally decided that our drive to Portland was three point and a half hours. Okay, now that being our circle data, then we can jump into the analogy that Steve was talking about. And so even if you do not have years and decades of historical data, we can bootstrap that historical data, get you going on a better technique than just using your gut because that's all you have available to you because you never collected any data whatsoever get you going. And then as you actually then start collecting and generating new data, we have a place to put it, right? We already have a formula where we can just start plugging in and start correcting those numbers saying, oh, we drove to Portland actually to see what it would take and turned out it was 3.25. Okay, let's update that number, change it. And then all the estimates, since they were based upon math upon that number, were easily updated and showing on. The second point that Steve made, I want to make a bit is that that information, we talk about accuracy. And I want to talk about you're using it to make a decision. Mark, you pointed that early in the conversation. We're doing this because we have to make a decision of some kind. How close to the true number do we have to be to make a decision? I think you don't have to be super close to make some decisions. Yeah, sure. I love to know the final outcome down to the penny of a cost and that second in time. But I need to only maybe on a two-year project or an eight-month project know the month. That's close enough. Is it, in the, is it in September or October? Are we more likely September or October? Maybe that's all I need to know. And so often when we try to collect data and we try to present estimates, we think we have to have super high precision. What we really need is super high accuracy, tell the right story, which may mean our precision might have to relax a bit. That is instead of saying the day it will finish, we say the week or the month or the quarter or the half year that it will finish because that represents what we actually know at this time as opposed to pretending we know more and giving a very precise number that is oh, certainly wrong. 
I do an exercise in one of my classes where we have them estimate a bunch of things and the really big ones, which no one has any idea. One of my ones, uh, I helped Steve on here was the gross takeoff weight of a 747-800F. No one has a clue what the heck that thing is. Steve might have a clue, but it, must be a lot of clues. Except people who used to work at Boeing, yes. yes. <laughs> and worked on that particular plane, right? Yeah, um, right. But no one has a clue. And they guess massively wrong. The question is, did they get close enough to make a good decision about, is it able to haul this stuff or not? Well, maybe they did get close enough to make a decision versus being particularly precise and getting the number exactly right. Yeah, because Earl, the maximum gross takeoff weight depends. Is it Pratt & Whitney engines or is it GE engines and is it Bendix brakes versus... There's well, actually not, a that's not, but we'll this not is like, there. I think we rabbit hole enough here. <laughs> Precise versus right. accurate. Give right, yourself 455 right. tons yeah. and you're, you're close enough. Right. But this does basically open the door to, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of stuff today and that's good. Sure it is. But this is actually a much deeper topic. And so, you know, hopefully you got some value out of it. But there's a lot of other things that we could talk about, like understanding not not what the estimate is, but why are we estimating? And h- how do we know that this estimate is right. good enough for that decision if they never told us what the decision is? And maybe if you're asking me for an estimate, I need to give you an estimate that's good enough to make the decision that you need to make. Maybe you should tell me, or maybe I should ask you what that decision is. So when I give you the estimate, I'm confident that you're going to make the right decision. But I warn you that if you want to go make other decisions based on this estimate, I don't warrant this estimate to be good enough for all decisions, only the decisions. You're asking me on a go, no go, and I'll give you an estimate that's good enough for a go, no go. But we're not talking about how to staff the project. We're not talking about when to commit to the marketing uh, blitz. and. that those are different decisions. Those call for different accurates, or sorry, different estimates, because what's good enough for this is not good enough for that. And so understanding this whole what decisions lurk behind the estimate is a whole other topic that warrants discussion. Sure. And I think that's that, that wraps back around to my comments about the business communication lines, right? I mean, if I'm a product manager, I'm a product manager and I'm responsible Mm -hmm. for putting out something to the field. The engineering effort that I'm accruing from expectations and what's being built in my my engineering organization, those particular things are a portion of my planning as a product manager. I have way of go-to-market plans. I've got marketing plans. I've got distribution plans. I've got all these different things I have to estimate on my side. So it's not just an engineer's issue, right? So when you talk about adaptation of the practice, there are estimation techniques that could be applied for other parts of the business, not just engineering. Right. If we come back to the, the main topic I wanted to focus on today, since I wrote today's agenda, ha, 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 ha. Um, <laughs> individual estimation is one. It is the most common technique. This is the one that people are going to use most of the time. And it's, it's okay in the tiny it's, it doesn't cause my harm, but when you start getting anything bigger than tiny or combining them and you have that strong bias, you're getting in trouble really quick. And there's some simple ways to improve it. Steve talked about having a list of things you frequently forget. That's a simple way to improve this thing. Look at a list of things you need to think about before you're coming up with an estimate of this type. Put it in a structured group. That'd be another way. Get other people's opinions to bring out more knowledge because they'll remember things that you are forgetting. And that conversation as you talk about the differences will improve the individual estimate. Add a three-point estimate or a two-point estimate and do the means thing. That's really important uh, idea too. So there's lots of ways, even if you do nothing different with historical data and stuff like that, 
you still can improve your individual estimates by applying some relatively straightforward techniques like the checklist of things have forgotten or the multiple points or putting it in a group. And Rob brings up a, a, a point that might be a good thing to say towards the end of this conversation, which is this issue of maybe an estimate is not a single number, but it's a range. And, and that range infers where you are in terms of your confidence, how confident you are of the work you're looking at. Well, I agree with sort of the sentiment. I may not agree with how that is being said. I mean, per, per what I said earlier, to me, the estimate is the 50-50 probability. The estimate is the point at which we are as likely to do better than as we are to do worse than. And when I have added on an allowance for the inherent uncertainty, which is a measurable phenomenon, by the way, and if I've added, layered on contingencies for risk, that is naturally going to give me a, a range that opens up beyond that 50-50, but then that gets into the area of commitment, okay? I'm committing to being in the range, you want my estimate, it's the 50-50 point. You want my commitment, I'm making a commitment to be within the range because I know what my 50-50 is. I've allowed for the uncertainty and I put in contingencies for risks and I think it's reasonable to commit to something that's in that range. So the estimate isn't the range, the commitment is the range. So it's a it's a how to find things. I say the estimate's the entire curve and people pick points off the curve. The whole distribution is the estimate. And people pick a point on the estimate depending on what they want to communicate to somebody else. So I, I look at it mm -hmm. as different. Um, and, and Jim brings up a good point here. Is where I know we're getting close to the top of the hour because you'll remind us of that, Mark, soon. Uh, but Jim brings up a good point. Is again, this steep audit early. The early estimates are probably you don't have enough information to make those kind of commitments early on with any kind of meaningfulness. And so as you actually do more work of the project, estimates can actually improve. But again, the techniques you use there should it also change as well. And certainly using individual estimation to estimate big things is always a typically a big danger sign overall. Estimation, individual estimation using your expert judgment guts tends to work on things that are relatively small for you. And for most of our software developers out there, we're talking a day or less. Anything over a day starts to look kind of iffy. Yep. And even, even under a day, I have them do a I have them do an exercise that takes literally three minutes. I have them estimate how long will think it would take you to do this exercise. And they're usually off by 60, 70% on a three-minute exercise. <laughs> I didn't twist their arm. It wasn't like they were going up to in front of their VP. They were estimating, going, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. How long will it take me to do this? They put down a number, we do it, and they look and they go, I was way off. If you look percentage-wise, I mean, if you look absolute value, since we're only looking at a couple minutes, it's not big. But if you look about percentage-wise, they're pretty strongly off. And I say, okay, here was a trivial task that you knew how to do that wasn't any kind of pressure on. Right. And look how far off you are. Why are you trusting this to make promises to external people ever? You're going to have to go to some other technique if you really want to get to that commitment number that Steve's talking about. And be able to satisfy that commitment without killing yourself in the process. Right. I think that sounds like a good place to stop here, gentlemen. Anybody want to throw out their top two things you want people to remember from this conversation? Go ahead, Earl. So since the topic is individual estimation, individual estimation is using your gut. When you're using your gut, you're probably going to be biased to underestimate time or cost or, over, or overestimate how much you can build in a certain amount of time. 
Because this is a, such a biased technique, it only tends to work on very small things where you can make easy corrections. If you're looking at anything medium or large size, you're going to have to find some ways to plus it up. We've talked about lots of ways, like using checklists, using multiple points on the estimation curve, and doing some math on top of that to putting in a structured group are the simplest ways to plus up an individual estimate. But if you really want to get good, we're going to have to go beyond individual estimation and look at other techniques, like the analogy technique Steve talked about, the proxy technique, where there's something easily countable that we can calibrate to effort and move forward, to parametric techniques that look at overall parameters of your project and then come up with a curve that fits all those parameters. Then you put in your variables on that and then it runs Monte Carlo simulations and it comes out with some estimate. There's other techniques that we can use to improve those bigger ones. Don't rely on individual expert judgment. Bottom line, trying to find some way to give yourself a feedback loop so that you can actually improve your own so see, come up with maybe your own personal fudge factor. That's, that's Earl's top 10. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, I'm doing Earl. Again, I mentioned very early that the, the, the surveys, three individual survey, three separate surveys showed that expert judgment, about 80% of software estimates are expert judgment. So it's by far the most widely used. But as we said, it performs the worst. And so message number one is to look at other ways of estimation. As Earl and I said, estimation by analogy, estimation by decomposition, the parametric or proxy-based estimations. That's point number one. Don't depend on expert judgment as much as we have in the past. Number two, I think the key message here is get historical data. Write this stuff down. It's really cheap to write down the historical data, and it's massively valuable and so when you look at the effort of collecting and the value having collected it, the payback is just immense. And so historical data is the second message. I like it. I like it. That's, I think that's a good place to close. It's an excellent set of go forward and use type of rules that people can pick out of this and, and go forward with. So thank you, Earl. Thank you, Steve, for your time today. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And uh, Steve, I might take you up on some future podcast ideas based upon some of the stuff that came out today. Might be fun. I just say that if you want to know those fourth and fifth level things, that there you go. The shameless commerce division jumps in. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, everyone who participated. Thanks for the uh, folks who who put comments in. I think they were really helpful. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Wow, what a great way to end that conversation with the call to action by these two fine gentlemen. I mean, I got excited listening to it, and I was there. So much to use in that discussion, like your gut's not enough, the tendency to overestimate what can be accomplished, how personally biased expert judgment can really be, and for sure the reasons why using other methods to estimate and to start building that historical database are so critically important. Hopefully listening to their years of experience are telling you that your own estimation practices are okay. But if not, then maybe pinging Earl and Steve on your own specific questions would be a good idea. And don't forget, in the shameless self-promotion category, Earl has an open enrollment cohort forming for his estimation learning program right now. So when we get to critical mass, we'll put it on the calendar. And if you want to make sure you know when it's going to be, be sure to be on the Constructs mailing list for the details of that offering and other news from Constructs in general. If you enjoyed this style of podcast, feel free to reach out to us and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever you normally find us. If you have comments you want to share with us, or you want to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. 
Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We really, truly would love to hear from you. So be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the podcast produced here by Constructs. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beattie as audio hack and producer. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint. <laughs>